Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Marissa Warren has more than 20 years experience in tech as a venture capital investor, advisor and operator working for companies like SAP, Microsoft and Workday. After an award-studded career, Marissa left big corporate in 2015 to pursue her passion for early stage businesses. Whilst living in New York, Marissa founded Elevarco, a global pre-accelerator for women tech founders. Fast forward to today, and Elevarco has empowered over 175 women across the US and Australia to raise significant capital and achieve three successful exits. In 2020, Marissa turned her first-hand understanding of the difficulty women founders face raising capital into an opportunity, co-founding Alia Via Ventures with previous podcast guest, Kate Vale. Based in LA, Alia Via invests early-stage venture capital in female founders who are building world-changing enterprise and consumer tech businesses. Together, Marissa and Kate have amassed angel investments with a valuation of $1.2 billion, including investments in Verbal, HowTo, Wakefully, Requipper, and Eugene. While very much at home in Silicon Valley, Marissa still sometimes longs for an Australian coffee. Marissa, it's so fantastic to see you. Yeah, likewise. Really good to see you. I can't wait to see you in person, though, instead of over Zoom. Well, Laguna Beach is somewhere I'd quite like to visit. So it would be lovely for, you know, to have the opportunity to visit you in California. It just sort of seems like you live the dream lifestyle. So, you know, California-based, running a venture capital firm. Tell us, how did you get to where you are and what you love to spend your time doing today? Sure, happy to. And I can go back quite a few years as well. So I, I come from a very entrepreneurial family and this goes back like a few generations on both my mother's and father's side. And I could say that my first sort of foray into the entrepreneurial world was at the age of 10. So I, I set up a little club there were five of us. I was the president and treasurer for some reason, I think, because my favourite board game is Monopoly, so I'm always the banker in Monopoly. <laughs> so our mission was to, you know, on those um, trash collection days to go around, sort of find good, you know, unused product that people had thrown away, take that and resell it. That was my first little business venture. And then from, from there, my parents were very focused on making sure that that my sister and I did some part-time work going through high school. They wanted us to learn the value of money and earning it. Um, fantastic lessons. So I, I then got my first part-time job at the age of 13. And I, I remember one 
weekends and getting my paycheck and going, wow, this is fantastic. Went out and spent it all that weekend on clothes, <laughs> all these great clothes. And then it came Monday morning and I go to mum, oh, I need some money for the bus to get to school. And mum's like, well, what have you just got paid on the weekend? What, what happened? And I said, oh, no, you know, I bought all of these great clothes and everything else. She goes, well, I guess you're walking to school, aren't you? And for me, that was a great lesson in budgeting. So I didn't make that mistake again with my paychecks. And, and it was a great sort of lesson of that sort of tough love from my parents. But because I had been sort of working in business for such a young age and being exposed to that, when it came time to graduating in 12 and then deciding where I wanted to go, you know, which university, for me, I'm like, I could not, you know, handle the idea of actually going to university and spending four years of what I deemed as a, like another institution. And I say this coming from a family of, you know, highly educated parents and, and, and grandparents, et cetera, and my sister. So I was the black sheep of the family and decided not to go to university. Instead, I, I, I went straight into business. So 97 was my first job in the corporate world. And that was working for a professional training and development company. And because it was a small business, I was able to to work across a lot of the different departments, which just fascinated me. And my favourite area was was the tech. So I worked closely with the IT guy. And I went, I really like this this tech. And it's when email and internet was coming out and we were using that. So then I spent 18 months there. And then my next job, I went, I want to get into this world of tech. And my next job was then working at Intentia. They had developed an ERP enterprise resource planning product called MoveX, and it was sort of you know up there in the in the top six globally. So that was my sort of entrance into the tech world. And just going back to your parents, as entrepreneurial people, were they sort of supportive when you took a different path to the sort of strictly you know academic you know structured sort of path, or? Did you really feel like you had to push quite hard against expectation to forge your own journey? So the interesting thing is my father's an entrepreneur. His parents were and, and grandparents. What sort of businesses did they do? Architects, so having their own firms. My grandmother ran a, a very successful art gallery in huh. Canberra in Australia. But before that, she was a journalist and an actress, and so she had a, a number of different Perhaps. very very interesting lady but the different my mother was actually in politics so that was sort of very you know the the well it wasn't a nine-to-five job because when Pump was sitting so very very high level sort of chief of staff type level on the both on the opposition and and in government but then her family was very sort of entrepreneurial background so my my dad understood the path that I was going down my mother didn't I think she stopped saying it a couple of years ago, but every every year she would mention, so are you going to go back and, and try and get your degree now? And for her, it didn't, you know, she had a double degree and, and all sorts of things. She didn't quite compute that I'd sort of gone down this path. Now she gets it, but it has taken a long time. If I look at how old am I now, 42. Um, so it's taken a long time for her to, to understand the path. Well, and it's funny because you've just won so many awards and accolades and just forged this incredible career. 
And it's funny how, you know, sometimes we get so hung up on one type of piece of paper when the world is sort of giving us all this evidence that we're doing really well. You worked for incredible companies, Microsoft, SAP. How did you develop the skills to thrive in those big organisations? Because I can imagine there's lots of really smart, motivated people, but you just seem to, in each situation, sort of, you know, rise to the top. How did you do that? I just had this attitude where you can do anything that you put your mind to and never give up. And for me, and it's, you know, there's that real driving force in me that I want to excel in everything that I do. It just comes naturally. And that that also, I, I was very sporty growing up as well. What was your sport? I was, I was in everything. I did gymnastics. I did platform diving. I was on the ski team. I did athletics. I did swimming. So my school years, in addition to doing, you know, my, my schoolwork and then all of the extracurricular sporting activities and then also working on weekends, I had always a very full calendar. And that's just the way I've lived my life. That decision to step out of sort of the success of this and the structure of corporate life into something that you direct and that's more, you know, personal to you, where did that decision come from? So by the time I started Elevarco, which was in 2015, I'd been in tech almost two decades, so, you know, almost 20 years, and loved tech. I had great career successes, but for me in that journey, I always had male mentors. I, I never had that female mentorship, and that's something that I really craved and I think for me, starting Elevarco, because Elevarco is a pre-accelerator that is designed to help women tech founders get invested ready and to get funded. And for me, it was a part of, you know, giving back to, to the world and helping these women find mentors. And, and I think probably in a way as well, for me, secretly wanting to find my own female mentors, which I've, you know, since doing that as well, I've, I've found plenty of brilliant women along my journey. And then even starting the fund Alia Via, and they're just amazing women come into our lives to, to help take us to the next level. I love the names you've chosen for both of your businesses. Can you give us a sense of where the names come from? Well, the interesting thing is for both companies, so, you know, obviously I started Elevarco on my own, but I started Alia Via with, with Kate Vale. And for me, trying to come up with a name was always really difficult. So for Elevarco, we did a social media competition so part of that was A, to help find a name, but also build brand awareness and connection to our brand from before even launching. And then people feel like they're on the journey with us of, you know, the brand growing. So we did that both with Alavarco and Aliavia and uh, tremendous results. Alavarco means it's Portuguese for uplift. Oh, how, how fantastic. Yeah, uplifting women to higher levels. So somebody had the had the name Uplift, and we actually thought that that sounded like a bra. So not really, a bra. but I went. I loved the idea of Uplift, and there were uplifting women. We didn't want a gender specific name either, because it's yes, it's about empowering women, but it's also bringing men to the table to help in that journey. And for Aliavia, that is actually Latin for another way. So we are doing venture investing another way, you know. We're going against the, 
98% of investment that goes to male founders and we're, you know, we're backing female founders. And I just reckon that's so smart, the social media campaign. Did you sort of send out a list of all of the names you'd thought of and get people to vote or did you just say, this is what we're trying to achieve, let us know what you think is a good name? Exactly. We did not want to put any preconceived ideas around the names for people. So we didn't give them a list. It's just this is the mission, this is what we'll be doing, come up with your name. So that that was it. There weren't any other boundaries around it. The two businesses sort of work together, don't they? How do you sort of get them to, you know, have that nice connection? Sure. So then I'll, I'll just touch on Aliavia first. So Aliavia is, so it, it, it is a venture firm, so based, as you said, in, in California, um, nice sunny California, and it is sunny most of the time as well. Except for when there's bushfires and other things. Yeah, yeah. So we invest, there must be at least one female founder on the founding team with a significant equity position and C-level role. That is a non-negotiable for us. We invest across both the US and Australia, and we do enterprise and consumer tech, and that's because of Kate and I's background. Kate um, worked at Google, Spotify, and YouTube, and then obviously my enterprise sales with SAP, Microsoft, and Workday. And we're in that early stage, so pre-seed, seed, and then we'll do a couple of Series A deals, but we see that that's addressing a real gap in Australia, particularly now because, you know, and you know this as well, we're the first venture fund in Australia to be investing in female founders. We don't want to be the only one either. We need more. We need more VCs investing in female founders. That's Elia Via. Ella Varco is still very much the, the pre-accelerator. We've had 175 women through the program. They've raised well over 80 million uh, and we've had three exits. So the most recent was in March of this year. I, I'm losing track of my years now with COVID. Um, <laughs> two separate businesses. But what we've seen is Elavarco has been really important from a pipeline generation perspective for Aliavia. So Aliavia, we've done five investments to date. Two of those investments have come through Elevaco alum and then also one through the Elevaco uh, network as well. So it's, it, it is a really important pipeline feeder for, for the fund. And when you say pre-accelerator, what do you mean? What are the sort of activities you do with founders in that stage? So it's really, and the program has really evolved since we first started. It, it's evolving every year and it will evolve into a, to another form next year as well. So I can't wait to, to share that with you when it's ready. But as it is today, it's, it's an eight-week program and it's all geared around getting women investment ready to get funded. And it's really stepping them through what are all the key elements they need to, to raise an early stage round from understanding how to do and present your business model and financials, your go-to-market strategy, you know, how you're going to get customers, you know, that first 100 customers, keep them, get them referring other customers, going through sort of tech. What we've found, 95% of the women that come through the Alabaca program is that they don't have a tech background. So we have a session on really tech for non-technical founders, you know, how to build a, build a tech company. Then we look at some, some of the legal things and considerations as well. 
together with understanding from investors what they, when they're reviewing deals, understanding the investment process that they go through, just getting in that mindset of how investors invest. But then at the end, we also help them pull together their pitch decks. There are all these sort of building blocks that come into the pitch deck that then is you know, presented to investors and we help them with pitch practice as well. One of the things I really loved about what you just said is, is that there needs to be more than one you know, VC firm that's committed to investing in female founders. And my experience with you is that you're fabulously collaborative. And I was listening to a great interview you did at some stage, you know, talking about the sort of psychology of scarcity and how that impacts on how women relate to each other. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, that was that was probably the interview that I did what was Suri back in <laughs> 2014. That was even before we launched Bella Barco. That was sort of the, the start of the journey. But when people have that scarcity mindset, they tend to act in destructive ways. And I have seen this play out in the workplace with women, unfortunately. So, you know, we know in, in tech it's it's been very difficult for women to progress up, up the ladder into those um, high roles. So for me in tech, you know, I was always seeking out those female mentors and they fall into one or two categories, the responses that I get first would be they, they saw me as a competitive threat and wouldn't want to help or would pretend to help. Or the, the old school, no, I fought my way to get up to the top. You know, there are a limited number of seats at the table. For women, you need to do the hard yards yourself. So it's just coming into that scarcity mindset versus the abundance. If you have the abundance mindset, it's like, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll help you because I know that by helping you, that's not going to limit myself. In fact, it's probably actually going to, to help me by, you know, the, the more you put that out in the world, the more that you're helping other people, it's, you know, it's that old karma thing. It's kind of the, the good karma comes back. And I just couldn't agree more that sort of grow the whole pie rather than fight over the small piece of the small pie. You know, one of the things that you sort of hope for in having that sort of expansive mindset is that there's lots more money being invested in female founders. But I think, you know, COVID in particular has sort of impeded that or maybe retarded that a little bit. What, what's been your experience over the last couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was the real driver for starting Ali Avia. I mean, going through the Alavaco journey, I had thought at one stage of maybe we should start, you know, investing in these great female founders that hadn't really come up with the right model. And then when COVID hit, we were having weekly calls with our Alavaco alum. At that point, you know, everyone was going, we think the world's falling apart, what's happening? And we had our Elevaco alum across both the US and Australia. So we were, you know, comparing notes in the different markets. The trend that I was seeing was that it, funding had just dried up overnight for female founders. And where investors were doing new investments, they typically weren't doing those into female businesses. They were doing them into male businesses. And in fact, in 2020, we went backwards in funding for female founders. So in 2019, we hit an all-time high of, what was it, 2.9% of funding in the US. Out of all the funding in the US, only 2.9% went to female founders. And then in 2020, 
we went down to 2.3%. So we were seeing that firsthand on the ground. And that's the point where I said, I, I sent Kate a message and I went, Kate, I've got an idea. <laughs> and she's like, uh, and I'm like, are you free to chat? And then within five minutes into my picture, uh, I think we should start a venture fund. She's like, I'm in. So we started. But the important point to add, so even though the market trend has been back male founders, all of the stats that we see are that, you know, if you have a female founder on the founding team, she will deliver you 35% higher ROI than an all-male-led team. So for us as well, it's like it's, it's not only is it something good to do for society, it's also a no-brainer from an economic return perspective. I mean, why wouldn't you back female founders who are going to make more money at the end of the day? What I'm hearing is that there's not a tension between doing good and achieving good financial returns. Do you think that sort of recognition that actually you make really good money backing underfunded segments is actually the way we change the behaviour in venture? It is. Well, we need we need more women investors because they're more likely to invest in female founders. So without a doubt, we need more female investors. Both men and women need to be, you know, moving the needle. I mean, I'm really fascinated by the pushback that you get reasonably often, which is, oh, yeah, it'd be nice to invest in female founders, but, you know, I'm not prepared to compromise on return. And it's like, well, actually, A, there's statistics that suggest you're not going to compromise return, but B, I think in terms of changing people's minds, seeing that you're missing out on good returns by not investing in that underfunded group seems like the way we move the dial. But I love your view that actually having more female check writers is part of the solution too. That's part of the solution. And it's also the other part is then showcasing these successes. And that's what we started doing at Velavarco. And what we found is then we were attracting even more brilliant women into the program because we were, and so women would look up and say, she looks like me. And in fact, a great story with Manuri from HealthMatch. HealthMatch was just an idea in 2017, but that was off the back of coming to one of our pitch events at the end of 2016 and seeing, you know, two of the other Elevaco alum that were in that health tech space. And that gave her the courage then to apply to the program, go through. At the end of 2017, Manuri had not only launched the business, closed two funding rounds, so, so a pre-seed and a seed round. She'd also won TechCrunch Battlefield Australia. And now they've most recent sort of Series B round have raised well over 20 million. So, you know, a tremendous success story there. But part of that was the showcasing these women so that, you know, attracts more women to start businesses. But then it also helps on the investing side. So you see, you know, the investors start seeing that, that those successes. Then they're like, oh, well, maybe this is something that I should get involved in too. Who are some of the other companies that you love in your portfolio that you love to showcase because they illustrate why it's worthwhile investing in these sort of founders? So for Ali Avia, I mean, I don't have any favourites. Um, so we have five businesses that we've invested in. The first one is um, Verbal, which is the, the YouTube for audio. And, and there's a common theme with 
all of our investments where they're disrupting sort of the status quo, the, the industry that they're in with the deep domain expertise or, def, or building new categories. Wakefully is great. It's a dream analysis app. So in that, it fits very much well in that mental health space. So it's interesting when, you know, psychologists, when they're working with their clients, they will often ask them about their dreams and talk about that. Our dreams inform a lot about our waking life and we can use them to help improve our um, day-to-day actions and mindset. That's a fascinating one. How to is, we like to say how to is like the Canva for e-learning. Huge global aspirations to disrupt that ed tech space. Um, Requipper for re-commerce for, for outdoor gear. So think about, you know, going skiing, you know. <laughs> ah, like camping equipment and stuff? Camping equipment, skiing gear, out, you know, hiking gear. Yeah, it's, it's the buying. It's it, it used to be the old thrift shop type thing, but now, you know, the thrift shops, you know, gone online. So, so that's another exciting business. And then our, our latest one, Eugene, which is the genetic testing company with big global aspirations and a great pipeline of more genetic tests to, to roll out. So just some really amazing, inspiring businesses, but then also founders linking them. It feels like for many Australian businesses, especially venture-backed businesses, that Australia is the test market, but really everyone's got their eyes on the US because that's where the big population, but also sort of a, a population that embraces technology. It must be an incredible advantage for founders working with you guys because you straddle both Australia and the US. Can you talk about, you know, how you work with founders across those two jurisdictions? Yeah, that, that is a really good point. Obviously, Kate and I are based in California and we are a US fund as well. And we do see that part of the value proposition for Australian founders is that, yes, we're Australian, so we understand the Australian market, but we're also here over in the US with our US markets. We act as the bridge from Australia to the US it is very difficult for Australian startups to have an investor to invest in their US investor to invest in their Australian company. Typically, you know, US investors will want them to do what we call as a flip up and have a US entity and invest into that US entity. Whereas we're prepared to getting early and invest in the Australian entity and really then help them scale to the US. But we are focused on ones that do want to scale to the US because that's where we can we can really help them. We found this well for me both at, at well SAP Microsoft and Workday and Kate also in her days at Spotify and Google that the US would typically use Australia as a first market test market to roll out because Australians are you know that much more tech savvy and and as a closer sort of fit to the to the US market so there's then a lot of synergies for our US companies when they're wanting to expand out of the US to potentially test it in Australia and again obviously because we have the knowledge and the connections there we can help them do that. There's a concept I think in gaming called uncanny valley where stuff feels uncomfortable because it's sort of like reality but it's not quite a match I sometimes think that's a bit the way it is with Australia and the US. Like we seem really similar, but then there's 
there can be some sort of cultural differences and misunderstandings. You've lived in the States for a long time. What are those sort of differences that maybe we don't appreciate? That's a really good question. <laughs> and I'm also, what, what a lot of people don't know, I'm also an American citizen as my mother's American. So th this is now my third time living in the US, even though I, I sound obviously very Aussie. <laughs> it's even just uh, Americans understanding you. So I, I like going and ordering coffee. <laughs> like, you know, sometimes having to, to reiterate what I'm saying. So it's even just that, that basic sort of communication exchange. There are a lot of differences around how we do business as well. I think one of the main things is the speed at which we do it over here. It is so much faster, so much more competitive than Australia. And literally, you see founders, investors expect founders to be, you know, almost sort of messaging them as they're walking out of the, you know, the meeting or the, or the Zoom or, you know, or hearing back. You, it's not, you can't leave it a week to send a follow-up email to an investor. It's got to be immediate, you know, and it's got to be on point. It's just that that's been the follow-up. When you do that, you'll see a lot more success. It's, it's just amazing. Even here in the US, I still see where, where people just don't follow up or they take too long, but, but it is, you'll definitely get the winning edge by doing that. And what about in VC specifically? It feels like some of the even the terms are slightly different, especially in, in California, what you made by seed or series A is quite different from what we think of as, you know, pre-seed, seed, series A. Is that just amounts or is that sort of developmental stage or what are some of those differences that are VC specific? The amounts are, are certainly significantly more in the US. So not only the, the investment amount, but also the valuations. So, and that's just the, the competitive nature over here. I think pre-seed really came in and has been popularized over here in the US because you had VCs investing at that seed stage and finding really that they needed to get in earlier into the deal in order to get you know, a certain percentage of ownership and to be able to sort of remain in that company with the pro rata rights as, as the, the rounds go on. So for, for over here in the US, you know, a pre-seed round is pre-product and pre-revenue. A bit more than idea, but not much. A bit more than idea. Yeah, maybe they're building out the prototype, but there, there isn't a product in market and they're not generating revenue. Then at seed stage, you typically there's a product in market it might be generating revenue but it depends it might not be so we have one of our portfolio companies a verbal that that had that freemium approach to start and within four months of launch they hit two million unique listeners on on a freemium model and now they're rolling out the monetization strategy so you will see a bit more of that attitude over here in the US where it's a bit more centric focused on revenue first in Australia and I think that's in part driven by the it's a bit more of a conservative investment market and it's just a bit more immature than the US it's just a nature of time before it that evolves more. As you were saying before it strikes me you're the sort of person that sets your mind something and you just work towards making it happen but have there been times where you've sort of had setbacks or failures that you've really learned from? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, life would be boring if you didn't have that. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, I, I've absolutely had, you know, the challenges in my career. But for me, and, and this is actually a really valuable lesson that I learned from my mother, there is always a silver lining and you will always figure it out. So you might have that challenge and it's like, okay, I just need to figure out now how to move past this and there will be a silver lining. Even though I can't see it <laughs> right at this stage, it will happen. And through, throughout my, my career and my life, I, I've seen that there's always been a silver lining. I've always been able to navigate out of those challenging situations. So I think if you have that mindset, it just makes it easier to deal with challenges. And what's advice that you've received that's been really helpful in having that right mindset? I just say never give up. If you never give up and if you can dream it, believe it, you, you can do it. I mean, obviously you can't just sit there and sit, you know, and do positive affirmations and expect something to happen. You have to put in the, the hard work yourself. But if you can have the idea, you will make it happen. You'll surround yourself with the right people, the, the right learnings that you need to get there to make it happen. I mean, Kate and I came together with the Aliavia in June of 2020 and said, yes, we're going to do this. None of us had started a VC fund before. We didn't know how to do it, but we surrounded ourselves with people that had been there and done that. And we learned from them, you know, and, but we also sort of challenged some of the traditional ways of doing things as well. So, and that's the other part. It's you, you just don't follow everyone else. It's you learn what they typically do. And it's like, okay, that's great. How do we evolve that? And we're having a lot of fun investing in great businesses. It sounds like you've got some pretty amazing role models in your family, but are there, there other mentors or role models that have really helped you over time? In a couple of my roles, my bosses, I think there's been a couple of bosses that once when I was at SAP, and the time when I was at um, Data3 when I was selling Microsoft solutions, and they you know, really helped me evolve as a person as well within, within the corporate world. I mean, I was there in my early 20s building a channel business for, for SAP, you know, and I... I looked after the southern region of Australia and then I had a counterpart looked after the northern region. And I was working with, you know, 60-plus-year-old men telling them how to run their businesses. So I had a lot of learnings to do there on, on how I would have those conversations with them and, you know, where I saw that they needed to improve their business, how, you know, how I actually delivered that news and work with them to get the best out of them. In terms of other ways that you've enhanced your learning over time or ex sort of expanded your thinking, are there, there books, podcasts, things that have been really helpful for you that you would recommend to others? Yes, so I'm, I'm one of these avid learners, so I am always learning. It's, it's funny that I didn't want to go to university, although I love learning. On a daily basis, I, I consume a lot of podcasts and audio content. So one of my favourite, I mean, I've been listening to since 2012, Bloomberg Tech, used to be called Bloomberg West, 
I stream it on my my phone. And that's just the latest around what's happening in the tech and the VC ecosystem. That's on, you know, Monday to Friday. But the great thing is that they have the pre-recorded sort of videos. So I just go back to and listen. TechCrunch Equity. I'm liking as well listening to the Innovation Bay podcast because that just helps me keep a bit more connected with what's happening in Australia. He's got a great accent too, Ian Gardner. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, and books for me, I, I'm one of those boring ones that loves business books and biographies of successful people. Like that's what I geek out on. One of my favourite books of all time was Jim Collins' Good to Great. Um, just so many great learnings there. Then, I mean, even the you know, biographies of Richard Branson, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs. I was thinking there have to be some women there as well. Madonna as well. I just, you know, one of those ones that just pushes the boundaries. And I like those types of stories where they're, they're not just following the status quo. They're really pushing the boundaries. Spanning two time zones as you do, because you're West Coast in the States, plus presumably you work, you know, some of the Australian day. What's your best productivity hack for trying to get it all done? I'm a list maker. So I will start the day and have my list of the things that I must do during the day. And I'm very good at staying focused on that task until it's done. And I don't let other things distract me. So that's just the, the discipline nature. Maybe it's coming out of my sporting background, but I just sort of super disciplined in that way where I just focus on it, get it done, and then I move on to the next thing. When you think about entrepreneurs seeking funding, is there any advice that you would give them? A couple of pieces here. Uh, I think particularly for Australian companies, you know, and, and Blackbird sort of really coined this phrase, you know, think global. But definitely think big, think bigger than Australia and don't be afraid to share that either. You know, we want to, as investors, we want to see that ambition. We realise that, yes, you might be starting off in Australia, but we want to see that you have global plans that you're going to expand. The other piece before you go out and start pitching investors, get your data room sorted. You need to have that organised. Uh, you know, if an investor says, yep, I'm interested, give me access to your data, we expect to get that later that day or the next day so we can start reviewing. I mean, we start reviewing the data as quickly as after the first or second meeting for a cap table and, and, and financials because that's our sort of first level. The other thing is have a really good lawyer. So many times when we've been on the other side of the table when we're trying to do these, do the deals with the founders and their legal counsel is just, it, it, they may have been cheaper to start off with, but it's actually ending up costing them more money because they're giving them poor advice. And we're wanting to make sure that the founders get really good advice and the terms are fair for both because it helps them set you up for success for the next funding round. It's in our best interest that there are good terms in the term sheet and the documents that is not going to turn off prospective investors down the track. And what's a good way to find a lawyer? Is it asking other founders who've raised who they used and whether they liked them or asking when you're talking to your lawyer, what deals have you done in this space? What's a good technique? Yeah, so definitely start with talking to other founders. You can even ask the investors as well because there's always a bunch that we recommend. 
And then, yeah, absolutely, when you're talking to those lawyers, understanding are they experienced in the stage that you were doing deals? So if it's early stage in your early stage, are they experienced doing early stage deals? Do they do them day in, day out? Because it's very different doing an early stage deal to a growth stage later. So like it, it just is, the terms are different. And there's a sort of series of questions that you should be asking around that. Last question, what are the things that you're really optimistic and excited about? Well, I'm excited about the fund. Um, <laughs> I, I just, you know, because it was just a, yeah, an idea last year and now we've already, you know, we have some tremendous investors on board across both the US and Australia. Um, Carol Schwartz, who you know, one of the, the founders of Scale, but then also on the Reserve Bank Board of Australia. We have our best weatherman who um, was at Warburg Pincus from 1988 to 2016 and, and on the leadership team there and now she's a special limited partner and we have a bunch of other high-profile women that will be announced soon but so it's really exciting and, and men as well but I have to add we, we need the guys for us that's it's really exciting that we've got fun to this point that we're investing and we have these tremendous investors joining us on the journey but our founders that are just building world changing businesses. Well, it's fabulous. I love what you guys are doing and um, yeah, really grateful that you could share some of your time. Thank you. It was exciting. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs. Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.